Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and Bill Pock voices. We humanize our role models and curate a culture of vulnerability and belonging. This is a show designed to innovate, empower, and ignite. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Innovators, it's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. And today's guest is someone that I'm really excited to sit down with because she's really a pioneer in her own right. I mean, leading the charge for some of the biggest uh, women organizations and movements in the nation. So Lisa Borders has over three decades of leadership in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors, and she is known for her ability to inspire change. A renowned motivational speaker and mentor, she shares her experiences in professional sports, medicine, government, and corporate strategy to guide Fortune 500 companies, philanthropic organizations, and everyone in between. Lisa served as Atlanta City Council President and chaired the Borders Commission for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. In her current positions on both Duke University's and J.P. Morgan's Six Circles Trust Board of Trustees and as founder and CEO of Golden Glow Media, she brings a dynamic outlook on public health, sustainability, the intersection of sports and politics, and the DEI challenges we face today. Serving as former president of the WNBA, CEO and president of Time's Up, and the vice president of global community fairs at the Coca-Cola Company, and the president of the Grady Health Foundation, Lisa offers an enlightened approach to leadership and has an unmatched ability to connect people and perspectives from a vast spectrum of fields and specialties. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Lisa May, it is a privilege and my great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I am so thrilled to have you with us because you are an absolute force to be reckoned with. You know, your leadership and what you have accomplished and how you support others on their journey is just incredible. Before we dive into your work, I'd love to know more about your roots. Where did you come from and what was your childhood like? Wow, you're going to take me like all the way back. So let's go there. (laughs) Let's Uh, go. I'm ready. Uh, I was actually born in Washington, D.C. while my father was in medical school at Howard University, but shipped down along with my siblings to my maternal and paternal grandparents while my Father was in school and my mom was working to support him. So I actually grew up in Atlanta and this is where I live today. I've spent the majority of my life uh, in Atlanta. This is where I reside. This is where I will retire. Uh, (laughs) But I grew up during the civil rights era on Auburn Avenue, which for those who are unfamiliar with 
Atlanta. That was the original black Mecca. It is blocks of one street in one part of town where there were black churches, black people lived, black people owned businesses. So I saw preachers, teachers, entrepreneurs, and so many role models growing up right on that street. My paternal grandfather was Reverend William Holmes Borders Sr., who was the pastor at Wheat Street Baptist Church for 50 plus years. And our church is one of three churches on Auburn Avenue. Dr. King's church is a block away and Big Bethel AME is three blocks away. So I grew up in a very supportive, embracing, inclusive environment, but it was segregated, Lisa May. It just oh, like wow. much of the country, not just Atlanta, but the entire US. And people always talk about segregation and discrimination as if it were localized and only in the South. And that's just not true. They were just frankly more honest and brutal about it, but it existed everywhere. And that's where I grew up. Today, we call it the cradle of the civil rights movement because so much work was done to ensure that black people, not communities of color as we talk about it today, it was black communities, had the resources that they needed, whether it was housing or public safety or grocery stores, you name it. That is part of where I grew up and the, the environment that I lived in and I learned from. How powerful is it for you to, to be at the root um, of, of so much of our African-American history and culture and movements and to be the granddaughter of civil rights leader, Reverend William Holmes Borders, um, and to be like immersed in what activism looks like, right? And and what what change what changing policy looks like. What were some of those earlier influences in your life that helped shape your interests and skills? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I have to tell you that I really didn't understand what my grandfather and my parents and my mother's parents were actually doing during the 1950s and 60s. You're a little kid, you're living through history, but you don't really understand what's happening. You're too busy playing and frankly, being bad, you know, doing things <laughs> you're not supposed to be doing, right? So I know I didn't really recognize or realize that my grandfather had helped get the first black policemen their jobs in the city of Atlanta until I was about 30 years old. I really, wow. I knew the history, I had learned about it, but you know, it's not real to you because you're just living your life day to day. My grandfather wrote a poem called, I Am Somebody right around the time, it was actually a little bit before I was born, and it really extolled all the virtues, the values, the contributions of black people, because that was not taught in history. It was not taught in school. And so we learned about this at church. So that was probably one of the first influences I can remember about learning who I was as a person and where I came from and the, contribu the contributions that our people, Black people, had made not only to Atlanta, but to this country growing up. 
The second thing was helping to integrate what was then called a private school. Today we call it an independent school. And it was 1969, and I can remember being student of color number eight uh, in seventh grade, and it was a traumatic experience, quite frankly. And what I realized is that the academics were amazing, but the social environment and the psychological piece of it was very, very difficult. And so that was a really tough time, but it really set the tenor and the tone for who I am today because it was so challenging. And then the third thing that I think left a real impression on me as a young child was about the time I went to the private school, Maynard Jackson also launched his political career in my grandfather's pulpit. So in those days, it was really you went door to door and asked for people's votes, but one of the places that you could find large blocks of people, it wasn't just like at employment places like the Coca-Cola company, it was in church, particularly for black people. And so Maynard Jackson came to my grandfather's church to announce his candidacy. He was running for the U.S. Senate. He didn't win that race, but we all know the rest of the story. He ultimately ran for mayor in Atlanta and was mayor three times. And he is my political mentor. So growing up, my grandfather writing the poem, I Am Somebody, and deeply embedding in all of us, me, my siblings, my cousins, who we were as Black people and whose we were, going to an independent school and having exposure to a majority environment, and then watching someone take a step into the civic and political arena where you could change public policy, not only for our community, but for the entire community of Atlanta. Those were three high watermarks, I would say, that really left some indelible impressions on me. You know, I am just incredibly, you know, my jaws open. Listeners can't see that. My jaws open. I'm just in awe of you know, just black royalty. (laughs) That's what comes to mind. It's just, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to, to spend a lot of time with Reverend Jesse Jackson on my stage as well, and learning more about the civil rights movements and the people who've led them. And, you know, when you were talking about, I am somebody, you don't even need to, to hear the rest of the poem to be moved, right? I am somebody. But would you you take take a moment to just recite a a, a verse? (laughs) Listen, it's too long, but it starts with, I'm a poet in Langston Hughes. I mean, it, it, it really talks about everybody from Fannie Lou Hamer to, you know, men, women, Daniel Hell Williams, W.E.B. Du Bois, all of the great thinkers and the great doers, Booker T. Washington, all of them. And we think of that as ancient history, but it's really not, right? Some of it was 19th century, but much of it was the 20th century, right? And so Mm -hmm. as we think about the activists today, the young people leading the Black Lives Matter movement, and I have said often to friends beyond the Black community, listen, we're not trying to substitute 
black lives. We're trying to include black lives. Maybe we should have said yes. black lives matter too, T-O-O, meaning also, because when everyone starts talking about, well, don't blue lives matter, meaning law enforcement, don't white lives matter, of course all that matters. But All lives matter. All, yeah, yeah, it matters, but you don't have to say it in the white community or in the police community because you live it every day and it's so ingrained in, in society that you don't even have to mention it. You don't have to bring it up. But if you look at the statistics about black men, women, and children dying in this country at the hands of law enforcement needlessly and cruelly, that's where you have to call it out and say, yes, these lives yeah. in fact matter too. Look, you only have to look at history and look at the three-fifths compromise that said we were three-fifths of a person. First, we were nobody. Yes. Then yes. we were three-fifths yes. of a person. Then it was separate but equal. So there have literally been laws, the black codes, you know, to keep us as a community disenfranchised, which is why we have to elevate this conversation and call it out for what it is and say to folks, okay, let's have a conversation. What are you talking about right now? So my grandfather writing this poem about the great thinkers and the great teachers and preachers and entrepreneurs, our forefathers and foremothers, number one was to educate us as black people about where we came from. But it was also to educate everybody else. Like, don't get it twisted, right? <laughs> when people talk about the real McCoy, that was a black man, Elijah McCoy, who worked on the steam engine, right? His mm -hmm. name is mm -hmm. iconic, but a lot of black people don't know a black man was named McCoy. And that's why we call it the real McCoy. The first professional golfer was John Shippen, not a white guy. It was a black guy who was born in the 1800s. This is new history that I've learned recently because most yeah. people think about golf and they think about the black golfer as tiger. There can only be one, right? Come on, come <laughs> on. So I won't <laughs> recite the whole thing, but you get the picture. <laughs> oh yeah. I feel like I need to, like, as soon as this podcast is over, I'm hopping on Google. I'm reading that. I'm getting, I'm getting my education because, you know, as a, um, black indigenous Latina, I need to be up on my, my ancestors and, and learning more about those contributions. You just put me on the spot, Lisa. Um, <laughs> and so many of us, I'm sure. But you talk about, you know, navigating these challenges, um, going to private school, which is, which is amazing that you've had that opportunity. Can you share a little bit more about your higher educational journey? Sure, sure. So I started at the private school in 1969, graduated in 1975, applied early admission to Duke University, and was thankfully accepted and attended Duke, started out as a pre-med major, trying to follow in my father and his sister's footsteps as a physician. My father and his sister wanted one of their kids, four on my dad's side, two from my aunt. They wanted one of us, or at least, hopefully two, but at least one of us to come out and somebody take over one of those practices, right? Each of them <laughs> had gone to medical school and come out and been just incredible physicians. My father was an internist. He's uh, deceased now. 
and his sister is still living. She's an OBGYN and she's like in her eighties and still working in the office and doing GYN surgery. She's partnered, oh, wow. she's partners with her daughter. So they ultimately got one doctor out of the six of us. But when the two of them were practicing, there were only a hundred black doctors in the state of Georgia and they were two of the 100. But really wow. what my father and his sister and my grandfather what they were all trying to do was help us become entrepreneurs so we would not be reliant on anyone for work, that you could hang your own shingle, you could perform your ministry in the community, which from their perspective was healthcare, right? And look at where we are today, right? In a pandemic where everybody is scrambling mm. for just basic primary care, preventative medicine. So Going to college at Duke, my plan, Lisa May, was to do well as an undergraduate and then go on to the medical school because Duke has both. They have undergrad and many different professional schools, but medical school is one of the most renowned. The Duke Health System and Health Center, they're extraordinary. And at that time, I wanted to stay close enough to home that I could get here if I needed to but far enough away that my parents couldn't be on my doorstep. In, in <laughs> you know, we're all trying to get away from home, right? Uh, yes. it, was, it was fascinating. And then, you know, I finished in 79. And then probably, I guess it was 1992, I applied to business school and ended up going to the University of Colorado at Denver uh, through a really fascinating program to get my master's in health administration. So rather than become a clinician, I became a business person who understood and understands healthcare. And I still use that knowledge, that pool of knowledge today. I'm just so inspired by you and, and, and your family's legacy. Like, I, I can I be a cousin? <laughs> Come on, girl, we are all related. We are all related. We are. All we have to do is talk a little bit and find out where the connections are. That's very, very true. You know, you've created such an impressive resume over the years. What do you feel your first big break was? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think my first big break was coming home after college. I had married uh, right after college, gone with my then husband to Boston to uh, have him attend medical school. But I think my big break came when I came back home to Atlanta and was able to get a job at what was then called Citizens and Southern National Bank, uh, or CNS, as it was fondly called in Atlanta. And that bank has since been bought by Bank of America and consolidated uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. But I had the opportunity to work in the investment counseling area and I handle something called cash management. So the overnight you bought money, invested in something overnight and then sold it the next day or seven days later, depending on what type of asset you bought. But that introduction to the structure of high finance was really fascinating to me. And it was the first time that I had had an opportunity to do something beyond what my family had introduced me to, which was working in my father's office or working with my aunt. Yes, I saw my first C-section when I was 12. It was crazy <laughs> and I passed out. My aunt was like, get her up. She's gonna watch it. She's gonna, I was like, ooh, I, oh, wow. I never wanna be a surgeon. It's the bloodiest <laughs> show in town. Uh, I'm, I'm rethinking the cousin. <laughs> 
Understand, understand. But the bank was the introduction to financial literacy, which you don't learn that in school to this very day, black, white, green, or blue, unless you are studying to be an accountant, right? You don't really, you might learn math, but financial literacy is a whole nother language, right? Nobody really teaches you that. And oftentimes I find, at least I saw this in college, is that people would spend money they didn't have, right? I wouldn't do it because I knew my parents would kill me, but I really didn't understand it until I had my job at the bank, right? Debits and credits and balancing your checkbook and never spending more than you brought in and always saving money. So that was my first big break. It was an exposure, an introduction to high finance, but also a sensitivity to managing money and understanding the value proposition of money. Which we all need to learn, because I agree with you. And so many of our guests as well talk about the importance of financial literacy and how most of us don't have it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not taught. So where would you... I can remember my son getting ready to go to college, and the night before, you're like packing and getting the car all ready. And I realized I had never taught him about writing checks. And at that point, we didn't have debit cards, and you... You had to get uh, traveler's checks or, you know, it was a a very different, it's 40 years ago or, excuse me, 20 years ago. So it was not only in our household, it's in every household that you really Mm -hmm. don't learn about money. Your parents are managing it for the most part. You might get an allowance, but people are better today than they were 20 years ago, but it's still something that we all need to really focus on. Yeah. Untapped market. So, you know, we, we, we've learned your deep roots in, in the civil rights movements and, and poli- policy and politics. So you were an Atlanta mayor candidate. What were some of the key learnings that you took away with you? Wow. The key learnings. Well, as anyone will know who listens to this, if they Google my name, I never became the mayor. I was a mayoral candidate. Uh, But I also served for almost six years as a public servant, as vice mayor and president of the city council. So let me give you a couple of learnings from that and then a learning from not becoming mayor. The city council in Atlanta has 15 members. It's the largest city council in the state of Georgia. Capital city makes sense, has the most people. Atlanta really only has about 600,000 people that live inside the city proper but some 6 million people are in the city Monday through Friday because folks are coming in from the suburbs, working in the city, and then going back home. So what I learned is financially, it's a very tough thing to run an urban core if you don't have adequate taxes being paid by everybody. That core of 600,000 people really is supporting a 10X. You know, you're supporting 600,000 people. So every time somebody flushes a toilet or has an emergency in the city or has an accident and the police have to come, Atlantans are bearing the burden for the entire metro region. So much like any business, The city is not a business technically because it's the public sector, but it is in fact a large enterprise. So learning about the finance underpinnings of the city and how many services are required 
and you are serving as a public servant. I think I made $40,000, Lisa May, that we're, oh my you're gosh. a part-time person, but you are on duty 24-7, right? 365. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I learned is that there were inadequate resources really to support the city, number one. Number two, I learned that they're as successful as Atlanta has been for several generations, we still have a 20 plus percent poverty rate in the city. Mm. So there are pockets that are doing incredibly well and you see them on TV, you know, the housewives of Buckhead or whatever. That's not all of Atlanta. There are wonderful places here in the city, but even with all of the opportunities that Atlanta has afforded everyone, there are still a lot of poverty and a lot of pain here. So that's number two. And then from running as an unsuccessful candidate, uh, what I learned is fa failure is not fatal, it's feedback. Failure's mm, not fatal, it's feedback. So I didn't become mayor, obviously. I'm still walking and talking. I had many other roles subsequent to that time in 2009, 2010. We are 11 years, almost a dozen years since then. And what I realized is had I been mayor, I would not have been available to work at the Coca-Cola company, to travel the world, six continents, 40 countries, and do all the things I had the privilege of doing or serve as the president of the WNBA and meet all of the amazing athletes who today, 12 of whom are serving as the source of the talent for the women's basketball team, just like the NBA, right? The WNBA is the source mm -hmm. of the talent for USA mm -hmm. basketball. So everything happens in its own time and in its own season. So that failure wasn't fatal. It didn't kill me. It was feedback. I learned about my own strength and resiliency, but I also was available to take the next step on my journey because I was not stuck, if you will, serving mm. at the city. And I say that advisedly because I still am here. I love my city. I will do anything for her. But those nearly six years in the public sector taught me a lot about how the city operates and where I could contribute and where she still needs help. Wow, that's so powerful. I love that. Failure is not fatal. It's feedback. You were the former president of the WNBA, and under your leadership, the organization thrived and saw its record-breaking attendance and engagement. Can you share more about your experience as president, and what are you most proud of in that role? Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. The WNBA was the most fun I've ever had in my entire life, serving as president there, the Players are amazing, 144 of the most spectacular athletes, not female athletes, spectacular athletes you ever want to meet. Some of them have obviously been WNBA champions. Many of them have been Olympians. We are having the Olympics in the summer of 2021 because of the pandemic in 2020. So I am seeing young women that I spent time with going out and playing on the international stage. So it was not only fun, frankly, it was a turnaround when I got there because attendance was actually declining 
all of the key performance indicators like the number of sponsors, the number of people attending, the amount of merchandise that was being purchased, all of it was going in the wrong direction. It was going down instead of up. But what I recognized on my first week or two there was that there was a disconnect between the league and the players. And at the end of the day, regardless of what organization we're talking about, people are your greatest asset. I don't Mm -hmm. care, church, school, work, nonprofit, you name it, people are the most important ingredient. So I set about learning about the players one by one. All of them are college graduates or the equivalent because you have to be to be drafted into the W. It's the only professional league where you have to have that level of education. So, and it's about 75% black. So they're all women, 75% black, 15% from international markets. And these are women who spend six months of their lives in the US and six months, many of them in the international market. So these are citizens of the world. So from an experience and an exposure standpoint, it helped me grow in terms of meeting these women and understanding not only who they are, but whose they are. So sort of back to my own roots, right? Appreciating them and then being the person who was the megaphone, the face of the league that would stand up and unabashedly say, these are the best athletes in the world and we owe them the opportunity to display their innate talents and their cultivated talents. We should support them. They should have every opportunity to live out their dreams as professional athletes. So I became known as, in fact, I started in Atlanta when I brought a team to our home city in 2008, which is my own introduction to the W. Fast forward eight years, 2016, I'm being invited to serve as president of the entire league. So I was the raving fan in Atlanta. All the players knew I was that <laughs> lady on the other side of the, of the court who was always yelling for the Atlanta team. But once I became president, obviously all the teams belonged to the league. And so I had to cheer for everyone. It really was fascinating to build the relationship equity with the players. And that's something I treasure to this very day. I often said in every interview and every speech, I have one biological son, but I have 144 daughters because all of them, there were 12 teams, 12 players per team. All of them were incredibly special and important to me. And I treated them like family and I still do, whether it's texting them on their birthday or cheering for them when they're playing in the Olympics. I was famous, and maybe Lisa May, I was infamous for reaching out to them (laughs) personally when they were doing something really well, or frankly, when I had to share some tough love. It was fabulous time. Oh my gosh, I'm just so inspired. So then you move on to another organization, you know, as the first CEO and president of Time's Up, and you were responsible for leading an important movement, which raises money to support victims of sexual harassment and abuse within the entertainment industry, a movement we all needed. It came at the perfect time, right, on the heels of Me Too. What do you feel was the impact you made within that organization? 
You know, I was there for just a short period of time, but this was a group of women who felt passionate about making sure that all women were treated fairly and equitably and were not harassed. And so this was a continuation of work that I had done my entire life. Let me go back. Let's pause and rewind back to high school where I was one of eight black students out of 1800. And I got called the N-word every single day from seventh grade through 12th grade. So from 1969 to 1975, I'm getting called the N-word or racial slur every day. What I vowed is that anywhere that I ever worked or where I ever led, that that would not happen, that no one would feel isolated or alone or be mistreated in any way. So fast forward to Time's Up, and it was clear, abundantly clear, we've all experienced it regardless of our age, women have experienced harassment in some shape, form, or fashion. It could just be an offhanded comment. It can be a dirty joke. It can be direct, uh, in-your-face discrimination. I mean, it can take many shapes and many forms. And so this was a group of women out of Hollywood. Shonda Rhimes and Katie McGrath were the two women that approached me. And I recognized that they had the right idea about what we should do, work together as a collective to push back on this social norm, because it really was Mm -hmm. and still is to some extent a norm. Mm -hmm. My thought though, is that you cannot do this in isolation. Women can't do this alone. We're gonna have to do this with our male partners. So my role there was really to get the organization set up and started, and that's what I did. They continue the work today under the leadership of Tina Chen, and they are doing good work. It today is out of my purview, but it is still focused on the problems at hand. Yeah, I'm just so inspired by you, Lisa, and this is a perfect time to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Leanne Pittsford. Leanne Pittsford is an entrepreneur and the founder of Lesbians Who Tech, the largest LGBTQ community of technologists in the world. This community is committed to visibility, intersectionality, and changing the face of technology with over 40,000 non-binary LGBTQ women, queer women of color, and allies in tech, as well as over 40 plus chapters worldwide. In 2017, Pittsford launched Include.io, a mentoring and recruiting platform that fights bias in technology by scaling access to direct referrals for underrepresented candidates. Pittsburgh fell in love with tech while managing the data and teaching herself to build online fundraising tools for Equality California that raised millions of dollars for the No Prop 8 campaign. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Leanne Pittsburgh. Hello, innovators. We are back with the incredible Lisa Borders a powerhouse of a woman who has over three decades of leadership experience and inspires people around the world in all walks of life. She is Black royalty. (laughs) So 
Lisa, you've led some of the largest initiatives in the support and advancement of women, as we just discussed. Um, And I know you've had your share of challenges. So what were some of the hardest challenges you faced in your career and how did you navigate through them? Wow, that's a that's a great question. I think the the challenge that I met time and time again, like many women, it was and is being underestimated. Typically, when you're in a boardroom or a classroom, the mailroom, folks don't think you have the ability, the capability, the capacity, the compassion to be able to do whatever, fill in the blank. They just assume because you are a woman, you are less than. I don't know where they get that from because there's no empirical evidence to play that out or to prove that out. But these are preconceived notions. They're ill-informed and ill-advised. And the way that I typically have overcome that is just go in and do the work and deliver the results. At the end of the day, you know how they say in um, real estate, when you're buying a house, it's location, location, location. In in business, I say it's results, results, results. So don't complain about what they're saying. Just ignore the noise. Put your head down. Make your plan. Build consensus. Execute the plan and deliver, deliver, deliver. And then... When the facts are on the table, they will be irrefutable. It's not someone's opinion, whether you're smart or good or you could do it. The results are there in plain view and people have to acknowledge that. It might be grudgingly, I don't care. As long as you (laughs) deliver and they can see with their own eyes and ears, it works every time. Yeah, it really does. And I, and I love what you said about like being underestimated uh, because, you know, I think all of us uh, can relate to that. And I've certainly, definitely, I wear crowns regularly. So when I walk in with my crown, I'm definitely underestimated <laughs> until we sit down and start talking. Right. And then they're like, oh, maybe she might know what she's talking about. Um, so, you know, your passion You're passionate about your mission to enlighten, empower, and elevate others. And you're now the CEO of your own company, Golden Glow Media, which I love that name because it's all about like, you know, shining our light and amplifying, right? Um, And you produce your, your new podcast called Enlightened. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So let's start with the name. Uh, My mother's name was Gloria, and she and I are just alike. She has passed on now, too, so her transition was a hard one for me because she was my inspiration, and she remains my inspiration even after Mm -hmm. her transition. I can hear her voice often when I'm trying to do something or I'm not quite clear on which direction I'm going to go. I can hear her counsel Uh, in my head, but most importantly, I can feel it in my heart. So Golden Glow is actually named for her. We called her Glow Mm -hmm. as she got older, and she was a golden girl. She would share her light and her inspiration throughout my entire life, but in her life, and she was, you know, well into her 80s when she transitioned, She was always trying to make the world a better place, starting with herself and her family and her immediate community, 
but then by extension, everybody that was around her and all that was happening uh, in her sphere of influence. So that's why we named the company Golden Glow. And we are using media platforms to share the knowledge that not only I have learned, but that all of my guests have learned during their careers. We are talking to folks from all walks of life. You know, many podcasts, just like many cable news shows or cable shows in general, they pick one topic, politics, public safety, higher ed. We decided like life isn't separated and segregated that way. Life is very integrated and it's very dynamic and fluid. And so I wanted to invite people from all walks of life, all different ages, all different experiences, exposures, and expertise, and have them share their moments of enlightenment, learn a little bit about them, what shaped their thinking, but also what did they experience that might actually have changed their thinking, enhanced it, evolved it, improved it, And so really it's a compilation of experts, if you will, from their academic experiences, but their lived experiences and exposures as well. And we invite them to share on a weekly basis, 30 to 45 minutes, you know, a time that you could take a shower, brush your teeth, get ready for work and be inspired as you go out of the door or any time of the day, you could go to sleep listening to a story that might give you an idea about how to improve your own life. Hopefully something resonates for you. I'm so inspired by that. I I think we're looking at the same blueprint, but in our own magical way, uh, delivering. So we're living in a world that has shifted dramatically for all of us as as we redefine, rebuild, and shape ourselves forward. What is your hope for the future, Lisa? Wow. My hope for the future. Um, I really would hope that people would walk their path with an open heart and an open mind because today we are incredibly polarized and people are not willing to take in information that runs counter to their current thinking. So many of us live in what I would term an echo chamber. We talk to the same people, we listen to the same newscasts, we read the same books, rather than be open to new thought and new possibility. You don't have to, you can, let me say it differently, you can disagree without being disagreeable. So Mm, my, my hope is that people will in fact walk their own path but that they will open their mind, open their heart to others, because that's how you learn, that's how you grow, and that's how chasms, divides are closed, not only in our society, but in the world, if you just take the time to do it. That's just so, you know, I love that. You can disagree, but not be disagreeable. And I don't think a lot of us know how to do that. You know what? I think about, um, and I tell, our, I used to tell our players this at the W, but I tell folks this all the time. In sports, you go to your bench to get your instructions, right? From your coach, from your teammates. But to play the game, I don't care what game we're talking about, football, baseball, soccer, basketball, you have to come to center court or center field to start the game. You don't stay in those very extreme positions, you come to the middle. 
and then you begin the game. And the game is dynamic, right? The game is going left, right, up, down, around. And you must move with the flow of the game. If you keep your feet rooted in one place or cemented rather in one place, like you'll miss out on the game, right? The game's not going to come to you. You got to go to the game, right? So when I see people sitting in extreme positions and only in their echo chambers, it's reminiscent to me of sitting on a bench with your team only. Mm. You're not willing to come to center court, center field and play the game. You want to sit over there by yourself, knock yourself out, but you are not going to grow. You're not going to be part of a solution and you darn sure aren't going to win the game. You want to bench yourself? Be right. my guest. Right. We're going to be over here playing our best, right? That's exactly I love right. That. That's exactly right. I feel like I could just do anything right now, Lisa. You are giving me life. <laughs> All the golden nuggets. I'm going to walk around with all the sayings. <laughs> I am somebody, you know, like I, I I, am literally like so much life and enlightenment. I mean, such a good w- way to think of this is like you are a source of light and enlightenment and just, just power. Um, yeah, thank you. You know, at Wonder Woman Tech, we believe vulnerability is a superpower, And so can you share something with us that you have never shared with anyone else before? Wow. You know, Lisa May, my whole life is like an open book. So that's a hard one. But let me perhaps share something that I'm working on because we often share with people where our successes are. And I, to your point about vulnerability being a superpower, I think it is equally, if not more helpful to share things that you don't do well and that you know you have to keep working on. And for me, that's asking for help, asking for mm. support. I have all, I'm have. i the first of four children, so I've always been the oldest. As my brother would say, you, you think you the mother, like you think you got... <laughs> all that together, right? And being out in the world as a black woman, I have always felt like I couldn't fail or I would fail my gender, I would fail my race and people would paint the entire black female or just females with my failure. And so I've had to release that. I've had to recognize that I am not perfect. I am human. I have my frailties and I need help just like everybody else. So when I'm working on a project, I used to try to figure out how to do it, you know, soup to nuts by myself. This is what a lot of women do, regardless of color, regardless of age. We think we are super woman. I like you are Wonder Woman tech, but I just take the Wonder Woman part and say <laughs> we all think we have WW on our chest, right? Yeah. And we do to some extent, but you and I and all of us need help from time to time. And that is not a weakness. That's actually a strength to recognize where you need help, to be willing to ask for it, and frankly, to then accept it when it's offered. So this is something that I'm working on every single day. If someone says to me, what can I do for you? The old me would have said, oh no, I got this, right? Today I'm like, hold up, wait a minute, let me look at the plan and let me share some of this so that we can get this done faster and better by having all the hands work 
at the same time on the same mission. Oh my God, I have to tell you, I, I feel like I needed this. It's sort of like a sign, like, yes, Lisa May, you're you're on the right path because, you know, I've beat myself up. I've went into burnout. I went into depression. I went into fatigue. I went into body, like, giving up on me because of this exact thing, Lisa, that I felt like, you know, as you said, soup to nuts. I have to do everything. This is my baby, quote unquote. It's not my baby. This has actually gone so far beyond me. But, you know, especially in the earlier years and even, you know, even as recently as 2019, when I finally just was like, ah, you know, um, recognizing when and where I need help. And, and trust me, I get all the hands raised. I'm so lucky that I have had early supporters early on but I still was like, I have to be the one to, to, to bear the load, right? And then maybe you can help this one little tiny little thing that I've already worked on. And like, you know, so um, it really is during this like pandemic season, if you will, that has allowed me to like throw up my white flag and surrender completely. It's also something I'm working on actively as well that like I, and, and the truth of it is, is I don't have to do it all. I don't have to have all the answers. Like I, and I beat myself up because it's like, but I'm supposed to know the answers or, you know, I'm the leader. I'm supposed to know these things. I, you know, I'm supposed to know how this works. And like, I taught myself everything from the marketing, branding, building, sponsorship, partnerships to actually the web development the UX, UI, like, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> Girl, this is, but part of that is we buy into that at a very young age. And so you almost have to unlearn it, right? Yeah. You have to unlearn those behaviors. And it takes time because it's not just like brushing your teeth. It's deeply ingrained right? Yeah. It's in your mind. So it's not just a mechanical thing you do, like brush your teeth or comb your hair. Like it is a mindset and a mind share. And you are putting the yoke of responsibility on nobody else put it there. We're putting it there oh, yeah. and we're reinforcing oh, yeah. it every day. So this is why I say this is my vulnerability because I'm the one individually and we are collectively that have to take that yoke off and give ourselves permission to do what we do, and, and here's a new saying for you, do what you do best and outsource the rest, okay? See, I'm at church right now, Lisa, with you. <laughs> you are at the pulpit, and I'm just sitting here soaking it all up. I don't even care who else is listening, because this is all for me. <laughs> well, this is for us. This is this, this is, is community sharing. It is. Exactly. Exactly. It is. And I, you know, I am so grateful to you. I mean, honestly, this, this has been a long time coming, coming this conversation and I'm so grateful to you, you know, to just be real. Like you're real. You're real in a way that we all just need in our lives. You know, we need these kind of role models. We need these kind of leaders at the helm leading these, these movements, these big companies, you know, the next stage, um, paving the way for the next generation, right? So looking Thank back you. on the impact you've made, you're welcome. You know, looking back on the impact that you've made, if you had to do it all over again, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? 
Great, great question. And thank you for the kind words. I would do it exactly like I've done it. And it is the road less traveled for sure. And here's why. At the end of the day, I recognize diamonds are made under pressure, meaning you must take the road less traveled and you must go through the adversity. You must have that friction. That is what really fuels your growth. So if you take the path that's already traveled, the road is flat, it's beaten down, you don't have any obstructions, no barriers, nothing to go over, under, around, no problems to resolve, you will in fact not grow. There is no resistance. If you think about a physical body and your muscles, when you exercise, they actually feel that resistance. They shred and they grow back together stronger than they were before. That resistance, that friction is what you're getting when you take on the road less traveled. So I would do it exactly as I have done it. Have I made mistakes? For sure. But I have learned more from those mistakes than I have learned from being successful. So I would do it exactly as I have done it. The road less traveled. Diamonds are made under pressure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Another nugget, another diamond. Um, you know, this has been one of my favorite conversations to to dive into, you know, just to just to even be inspired by, you know, the the foundation of our ancestors who you've like literally had the opportunity to be one degree away from and 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 to to use that foundation as the your pathway forward, your guiding light, you know, um and to make sure that the rest of us can see our own way and our own path. You know, this has been so inspiring, Lisa, and I'm so glad that we got to sit down and, and learn more about what's, what's, what, what is legacy and what is legacy for uh, our black uh, and brown communities and women who are, um, you know, quite, quite frankly, going to be taking over the world. So, so- <laughs> And you put it out there, and I love it. So let me just say thank you for the opportunity to sit down with you and congratulate you and your entire team and the Wonder Woman Tech community and family. You all are doing it and doing your best to leave some indelible fingerprints in your communities and the spheres of influence. If everybody just does a little bit, Nobody has to do a lot, and frankly, everything gets done. So I say congratulations to you, and thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa, so much. Thank you so much for being here, Innovators. Make sure you give us a like and share the podcast with your network. We'll see you next week when we take on the world. One more time.